Decorating Pages is a podcast dedicated to taking you behind the scenes of the designs of your favorite TV shows and films. Each episode, I'll be sharing design stories from some of Hollywood's most famous sets. Interviews from set decorators, production designers, directors, and actors about creating the look of TV and film, about their design inspirations, and stories that take sets from page to screen. Hello, and welcome to Decorating Pages. I'm your host, Kim Wanup. Uh, I think uh, I'm at week 12 of uh, COVID, and um, I don't know. I'm going to get through this intro quick because this interview with Corey Lorenzen, production designer, is really good, and I want to get to it. Um, first off, just to address what uh, is all happening to us throughout this country, uh, I live in L.A., I live two blocks away from the intersection of 3rd and Fairfax of the Farmer's Market, the Grove, where there was a protest and it was turned into a standoff with police and vehicles were trashed and burned and it was next to my favorite wine bar, which was super scary that that was going to go down the blending lab. But um, frightening is not the word that I could say because, you know, this is happening two blocks away and I have twins napping in the next room. So there's just been a lot of emotions going on this week, I think, for everyone. And I think all emotions are justified in this. I feel so much sorrow for George Floyd's daughter and his mother and his family, and I don't even know them. And then personally, I feel bad for the small business owners who have gone through a lot in my neighborhood. I know a lot of them on Third Street. And um, I just feel bad that all around there is just so much disrespect and anger in this world. And I don't know, I, I really try not to get political on this podcast because we all get enough of that. And I, I want this to be an escape. But I, I do want to comment that none of this behavior is tolerable. And actions have consequences. And that's, that's what I'm going to teach my children. I'm going to teach them love and kindness and compassion. And that's what I'm going to start with because I don't know how to solve this. I hope that all of you are safe and healthy and doing well. In this episode, I speak with my friend production designer, Corey Lorenzen. He is pretty busy during this pandemic because not only is he currently the production designer of the Goldbergs and Schooled, he also is an entertainment designer for companies like Universal, Nickelodeon, and, and others. And what that means is he creates interactive, like, theme park vignettes, like, or some, like, theme stores in that are in the parks, or even floats for the Disney parade for Disneyland. Like, that is such a cool job. And somehow he juggles it all. I met Corey in uh, 2005 on the film Fanboys which didn't even come out till two reshoots later in 2009. He hired me for the film, and uh, which was shot in Albuquerque. <laughs> Albuquerque. And unfortunately, uh, that's the only time that we've ever worked together. We had one small little project, but other than that, you know, your schedules just don't line up. It sucks. Fanboys uh, was just the weirdest experience of good and awful which I know a lot of people have had in this industry. You're going to hear all about it. But at least I made a good friend out of it. Uh, he's just a terrific guy. Starting his career with the indie hit Napoleon Dynamite, 
Let me just repeat that. He started his career on Napoleon Dynamite. Hello. He's been designing films and TV shows like Greek, The Paul Reiser Show, Breaking In, Web Therapy, and of course the two period hits, The Goldbergs and Schooled. We recorded this mid-April, so keep that in mind. Um, he's just such a good guy, so talented. So I hope you enjoy. the Goldberg since the beginning um I gave up this season <laughs> I just I, I know you. I know I know I love it but I gave up I but, if we're losing the if we're losing the hometown Philly audience then, then what are we uh, what are we even doing this for well, then well listen I have voiced my concern since the very beginning that they don't have Philly accents this is a you could have every John but who's, okay but who, who's gonna walk honestly though me. Local. Who's going to watch that, though? Locally? Okay. No, okay. I think people watch... No, no, no. Back there, people watch it. But I know people who watch it back there. My parents love is it. Their gripe, is there a gripe that there's no accents? <laughs> That's okay. Who wants to listen right. to a bunch of Philly accents for... <laughs> <laughs> hey. Uh, yeah, it's just me. I think it's just me. <laughs> but the whole thing is that little yeah. kid has, like, a Midwestern accent. They didn't even try to get rid of his yeah. dialect at all. That's, that's like insulting. <laughs> okay. That's not even right. You can only do so much. Yeah. I mean, you nail every, the reason why I watch every episode is because you guys do such a fantastic job of like, cap, not only capturing the, the error, but really capturing like minute details from like Philly. And I know that's because the creator writer is from Philly and of that time. And I'm sure he's, I'm sure painstakingly and probably annoyingly giving you notes of like, no, it's not the color red on Wawa, but you know, it makes for yeah, you know, fantastic we, TV for me. Well, good. I'm glad that, I'm glad that you appreciate it, especially someone that's local. Cause we try to hit all those kind of important elements that 
make it feel real, make it feel like it's actually taking place there. It's it's hard it's hard to do on this style of show and kind of this half hour comedic episodic show that's shot in Los Angeles. So yeah. we do things quickly and we do things for a certain price, but it, we always try to do our version, whether it's the Wawa or whatever, that's real. Always try to you know get as much of that reality as we can in there. So hopefully it's enough to you know make people feel it. Oh, definitely, because it's not all dialogue. There's so many little things in there like in the set dressing and the sets and like even like the signage and everything that you guys have done to make that so Philly. I love it. I'm, I'm telling okay. you, that's why I watch it. <laughs> so Awesome. Laura. Well, this last year we failed you. So yeah, you failed, but yeah, yeah I got a lot of I'll see where things went wrong. I got a lot of reels a while ago. I'm not sure where. Well here. All right. You want to go deep? I, I just don't get like, she went to college, go to college. Like, I don't know. It just, uh, just go away and then only come back for one or two episodes. It was like every episode was like, oh, mom trying to get me back or I'm coming back. And then, I don't know. I was like, this is too repetitive. I got to give up. I gave up on Modern Family like two years ago. That was a long haul. I finally gave up at the end. Sure, I got you. And, and I, I'd probably be speaking a bit without knowing the nitty gritty of it. But I'm sure there are other considerations on a show like this beyond narrative storytelling. I'm sure there's contractual obligations there's i'm sure there's other reasons why things are the way they are at oh certain yeah points. yeah you know especially on a show that's been running for a long time oh, like yeah. this to where maybe the initial narrative setup may have been i anticipate this going five years i anticipate this going six years and because it's been so successful but that's you know, what that, happens that, that with, with the need for, for for so much more narrative to be stretched out perhaps yeah but that's that's what happens with all the shows look modern family had to add kids you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And then they have grandkids. Oh, and yeah. like, you know, yeah. and working with kids is, is the worst. Yeah, at a certain, <laughs> certain point, you're just uh, enough's enough. Yeah. And then they grow up and, you know, you hope, I'm, I'm sure as a producer, you're like, oh, my God, just stay cute. Just please stay cute. And then these poor kids have to go through, like, puberty <laughs> during shooting. Like, it's a sin. I would. That's a sin. Yeah, I think it's. I think. I think at the very least, I think the Goldbergs. Uh, you know, the growing up in the Goldbergs has been fairly graceful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> without too much awkwardness, and and a bit of the awkwardness was played into. Yes. The story of the what was happening in the show. Yeah, I yeah. Think, it's good. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty good effect there. I and then, I mean, I wanted to ask you. You've dived. I mean, you basically live in the '80s and then now the '90s with schooled. I mean, you're just, like, living in your childhood, basically, and constantly reminiscing of things. Do you, you like that? <laughs> How is that? Yeah, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting because, you know, I think those shows are pretty successful due to nostalgia. You know, yeah. Kind of this undefinable feeling or sensation that we all have because of certain situations we're in our lives and things come back in memories and... I think it's a pretty powerful emotion that both of these shows have tapped into. And so when I started both these shows, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm about the same age as, as Adam Holberg and some of the same experiences and, and, me. and uh, memory, memories, yeah, that, that we've gone through this whole time. So I think initially it was pretty overwhelming to try to replicate essentially the emotion, right? Like I'm not trying to replicate a feeling for things because I could look at certain of these objects or the music or the toys or the fashion and have these kind of nostalgic feels for it, but it doesn't quite hit you the same way you remember it hitting you necessarily, but I think that's what you're trying to design to. You're trying to design mm -hmm. to yeah. that emotion. 
So initially it was a bit overwhelming and a bit like really digging into it. Now that we're so many years later, a bit of the nostalgia has worn off. You know, personally, as somebody who's trying to design those looks, yeah. it is more about like how do we still it's how do we hit those emotional I think that's a great point of I, each of these I I think that's a super great point because it isn't always exactly how you remembered it but what were you feeling when you heard that song or you know when when you were in high school and this situation happened to you too and you're designing for that really yeah exactly so sometimes it's it's not the uh, I was trying to figure out a good way to describe it. It's not necessarily, if you look at it as a whole, like each little piece of nuance might not be right, but as a whole, how does this make you feel? How does this yeah. make you remember? How does this set a tone for the, the story that's happening? And one of the things that we try to do with the design, like every designer, is not let what the design is, especially on something that's really kind of design-centric, not stand in the way of, of the story. Mm-hmm. And I think with something like the 80s or the 90s, because those are pretty intense you know periods of design i think the 90s is hard though i think i actually think doing 90s is hard because it's it's not good it's been harder than (laughs) 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 yeah a lot of people argue that the 80s i mean the 80s was a real but it's distinct goldberg is actually from the yeah most of the stuff from the goldberg is actually from the 70s yes that's how yeah people people don't live in the now people live in the past 10 years kind of constantly so yeah, we're able to mute out and kind of tone down a bit of the Goldberg stuff, and really have like that kind of spastic '80s contemporary design be used more as an accent in it. it to me, the '90s, especially like the late '90s, like that, like in my mind, is still so current, even though we're you know over 20 years ago. It's kind of weird. Yeah. In the '90s, yeah, but the '90s is where things. It's still recent enough to where we could look back on it and say that wasn't good. That we haven't gone through enough of a. You know, there hasn't been enough time passed to really appreciate what it was, especially like graphically. Yeah. So much of what we do in that era is with the graphics, and it's it's this really, it's easy to do bad versions of what the 90s is right now, I think. And so it's a bit harder for us to really do the good, authentic-looking design kind of across the board, which I think we do very well. It's just a bit harder. It takes a bit more effort to do. Well, yeah, I mean, we're not kind of falling into what, what, what cliches are of that era. Yeah, I mean, the the wood, the pine, the overdone uh, <laughs> florals, the, like, Laura Ashley, like, you could get into so many little, yeah. little uh, pockets of what the 90s was. But then there was those bright colors, and then there was, like, the minimalist of, like, black and white, like... It was so all over the yeah. place that it, I think the 90s is really hard to pin down. It is. I mean, it's, uh, part of my research was, was looking into what was successful about the 90s in television. I looked at sets like Frasier, right. which is incredibly understated and also very elegant. Mm-hmm. And, but I looked at like, color combinations, palettes, you know, types of wood grains that are popular in certain eras. It's a big difference between the type of wood we appreciate living with in the 80s versus the 90s. And it's a pretty big difference between them. You know, yeah. those those tent, those trends, those styles, you know, fluctuate. And so it's looking at kind of what are the contrast between the Goldberg's world and the schooled world. We needed to make them look like they're both in different eras. But also one of the interesting things about designing in period is that 
design trends don't follow 10-year increments. Right. It's really hard to say something was the 80s when it was popular between 87 and 97. Yeah. Or something was the 80s when it was popular between 72 and 84. So just because it's easy for us as humans to kind of compartmentalize things in these 10-year chunks, by no means did we live in 10-year chunks. By no means did we say, oh, it's 1990, time to to change the aesthetic. So things are much more fluid than I think we like to compartmentalize them as, as far as design aesthetics go. Well, I think, I mean, those two shows, I think you've nailed it. I mean, and I think it working so much probably with wardrobe and the overlap of that because your period... I mean, it, I think yeah, you've nailed it, it on the shows. Oh, great. Yeah, that's awesome. We, we were able to work a lot with our, our costume designer who's amazing on the shows. You know, setting up graphics and designs for almost every, you know, uniform or graphic kind of uh, element that needs to be crossed between the two. We're always really kind of aware of what each other's doing because the wardrobe on both those shows can be potentially, you know, very out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we want to make sure that there's a, kind of a cohesion between what those actors are wearing and where they are environmentally. So, yeah, trying to make sure those those work. That could be an opportunity for a lot of clashing in a very unpleasant way if there and, isn't a lot of coordination there. So, fortunately, we've got a good relationship to make sure we're working together on that. And your shit has to be funny. I mean, I think that was one of the things when I started Parks of, like, being super scared that, oh, my God, is my dressing funny? Like, is this chair funny? Yeah. Like, is this, is is the dressing part of the joke? Which, a lot in Parks, we evolved a lot of that into, like, this, the, the set was part of the joke or something. So, so there is that thing in comedy where you have a little bit of leeway, but you don't want to cross a line to be, like, over over the line, for to be, like, a yeah. take away from well, the dialogue. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. What I've learned in working in comedies for the past, I don't know how long it's been, 10 years or so, is, uh, how would you put it? I've got to watch the amount of funny that I think I need to put into something. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure yeah. I'm sure you found the same way in parts. Like, I am not in charge of what is funny on a show. That comes from our showrunners, who oftentimes feel they're the creators of funny, right? Yeah. So I need to make sure that the type of funny that we put in is in service to what it is they're creating and what it is that they're writing for for each show. Which is, I think, like you just said, it's kind of a fine line to walk. I could put in all sorts of things I think are funny, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's in keeping with the tone of what you know the rest of that show is supposed to be. One uh, detail I wanted to ask you about in um, Adam's room is the wallpaper. Did you yeah. did you make that wallpaper? Is that real? In Adam's wall, so I had Adam's I had wallpaper in Adam's bedroom that is a Star Wars wallpaper. Right. It, is, it was only seen in season one because it was a, uh, if you remember, it's like a kind of an off-white paper with a bunch of like right. little scenes of, I think it was Return of the Jedi that's on there. I have to go back and look. So I bought a remnant of it for, it's like a foot long. And I had to scan it and piece it all together and paint in the missing pieces and then have it printed like over at Aztec for us because I couldn't find it in quantity. So I found a little piece of it able to paint it in, multiply it, do his whole room. And then the network said, every time we're in Adam's room, there's a bunch of little faces kind of staring back at us because all the characters are on there, you know, kind of staring at you. And um, I was like, well, yeah, but it's cool, you know. Yes. Uh, you, know how, you, you know you know how network stuff is. Yeah, yeah, so, um, Notes. So one of the heartbreaking things I had to do, because that was probably one of the favorite things that I was really proud of. Like I found, we found this paper. I was able to, you know, recreate it. 
and we got clearance on everybody that's on it, got clearance from Lucas to use it, and then we had to get rid of it after that season. I think it may have even been halfway through that first season. That is so the funny. The network was really kind of... It's so funny that you, know, you actually have a that you have a story about that because I I looked on your website at, at at your set photos and I saw that and I thought oh yeah that wallpaper I remember that like that's cool and then it's sometimes as a viewer you you just accept like oh yeah that's what it looks like and you don't remember because it was you know what I mean like that's that's their living room and you sort of piece it so you don't remember every single thing but to me I'm like that's Adam's yeah that that's what it is and. The fact that it's not there anymore, I was like, oh. Because when I just saw it on the picture of your on your website, I was like, man, that's cool. I wonder if that's real or if you made that. That's awesome. Yeah, one of the cool things that Wallpaper did to that space and what it does to all the spaces in the Goldbergs is it adds this like visual texture to yeah. almost every set. Yeah. Like, we never have a, a blank section of almost any interior we do and also because i think it's kind of emblematic of what this era was there's I mean, kind you, of this excess of design you have so and much wallpaper you, it, i mean the whole house is just <laughs> so much pattern and <laughs> wallpaper it's yeah, great I don't think i've ever had to coordinate like coordinate so many different patterns together to try to work together but also feel slightly off like I said, there was so much of this during this era that it felt right to do it this way. But yeah. it makes a very kind of cohesive visual texture behind all your act, all our actors. Oh yeah, it's kind of this unified, this unified scatter of of you still you know, have kind the of texture behind everybody. You still have that. yeah. So taking that taking that out of Adam's room was like really heartbreaking because that was now the only room without wallpaper, and I think it was really one of the spaces I. It, it worked so well in honestly because it, it showed it was a wallpaper that was like uniquely yeah and you damn. do you know how hard it is i mean we know we know how hard it is to get clearance i mean you get clearance on so much on that show and yeah it, you know, it's, like, it's if you insane look at the beginnings of the show it's insane that you had like you get that yeah, for network i know we started out with very little clearance like so we got a couple star wars clearance we got some you know, gi joe's and hasbro stuff cleared right off the bat but because we were a new show we didn't really have any clout in you know kind of the pop culture world yet as far as this stuff goes as we go on season after season after season it became more and more popular show and more and more um you know ips and and, and product wanted to start becoming a part of the show so we were able to slowly replace you know kind of fake cheated things with real things and yeah get, yeah so so we're at the point now to where clearance hasn't become much of an issue anymore it used to be to where we would almost not be able to shoot things because we didn't hear back on clearance but now now we're able to get yeah so much cleared uh so much more quickly That's to so use good. on the show it helps i mean it just helps the environment and the viewer to be all encapsulated into into the show but oh yeah definitely the um <laughs> I mean, I I looked up Evan Goldberg, who is the writer creator. I didn't realize how many documentaries this guy's into, of of oh, yeah. like nostalgic, uh, like our generation, um, th- which we are Zennials. I don't know if you know that, but we're like that mix no. of we're like the best of both worlds of like a millennial and Generation Z. There's a there's like a four po- or a four year three year pocket in the late 80s and 1980, where we have the best of both worlds. Like, we know a phone and a cell phone, and we had great kid TV, and we have, you know, streaming. Like, we have, like, the best of everything kind of deal. I need, I need to tell us my kids, because my kids still call me a boomer. Boomer? 
You're not a boomer. All right. Yeah. That's um, so Evan Goldberg, you did you meet him on Fanboys? Yeah, so so we met on Fanboys. It actually was. I didn't actually didn't meet him until after Fanboys, so But he wrote Fanboys, didn't he? He wrote Fanboys. Yeah, so he and Ernie Klein Yeah, so he had written it. Ernie Klein I think Ernie Klein had written the original draft. I think Adam kinda of came into the production draft of it. Or I vice versa, I'm not sure which way it ended oh, up there. But the the two of them were, were were like integral to it. And so I had become good friends with Kyle Newman who directed Fanboys. And uh, I think I hadn't actually didn't meet Adam until after we had made the shot Fanboys. Mm. So I met him um, in Los Angeles back at home afterwards. And he was, you know, a great guy who obviously has this great vision. And I was able to work with him on Breaking In, which was for Fox, that was for Sony. And then that led to uh, the Goldbergs uh, and then school with him, yeah. I have, <clears throat> I mean, I have a whole page of just memories and things to talk about on fanboys, but <laughs> before that, <laughs> because, because uh, seriously, you can, we could, we could write a screenplay about the making of that film and it would probably be oh, yeah. funnier than that film. Yeah, that was a... That was insane. Yeah, that was yeah. really unique, yeah. But before we, before we get to that... I should, I jumped in. I should ask how you started, like how, how you got into this and studying for it and, and all that. Yeah, it's always interesting to me to hear how people became production designers or people started working in the art departments, you know, the, yeah. the, the greater art department, if you will, because it's such like a niche thing, right? Yeah. Like who, who even knows that there is such a thing as an art department or there is somebody that has to design all this? Like, usually when I introduce myself to people, that I meet, I don't say I'm a production designer or I'm an art director. I say, I design movie sets. And then they kind of look and say like, oh. oh so you yeah, dumb it down for that, everyone. That, Thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got to. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's always interesting to hear like how people get into this career that probably yeah. so few people know even exists as a career. But I started, um, I grew up in Los Angeles and when I was a young child, my parents actually got me into acting. Mm -hmm. So during the early 80s, I was on TV and commercials for like Tommy Toys and for Northern Soft Prince Toilet Paper. And I was in... You still get any uh, of those I was, Donner's, I was gonna say I was in, I was in Richard Donner's uh, Inside Moves, <laughs> oh a feature God. film with Sean Savage. That's and awesome. yeah, actually like a week ago. So every like 10 years, I get a SAG check for like 20 bucks because oh Inside Moves, you know, plays on That's HBO or something. That's so great. That's so great. So, yeah, so it's really funny that, uh, yeah, like that little part, I have like a little boy and I untie his shoes in the hallway. I'm like bugging this, I'm bugging a guy in the, in the scene, you know. So uh, I got this big bull cut in my head. And um, so, yeah, that still is a, you know, it's like me 20 bucks every 10 years. There you go. <laughs> but, that, but that exposed me to the fact that this is a, a thing people create at a very young age. I don't think that most people kind of realize, especially kids, I don't think they really realize that there's industry that creates the things that they enjoy. Yeah, yeah. So at a pretty young age, I was able to be exposed to this, you know, as a career. I, I, I didn't want to continue with acting, you know, at a pretty young age. I think by the time I was 10 or so, I was like, well, that's not really for me. But I always knew that being involved in that industry is what I wanted to do, although I couldn't really pinpoint what it is I wanted to do in it. And also growing up next to, you know, in Los Angeles, there were so many, you know, friends that had parents in the industry and things mm -hmm. like that, that, you know, you're kind of exposed to it at a pretty young age. So... 
it wasn't probably till high school that I was, this is going to be kind of weird, Discovery Channel used to be cool. Oh, yeah. They used to have a show about the making of Hollywood films. And it was called something like, let's look it up, like Movie Magic or something. And it was like behind the scenes of special effects and production design and matte paintings and pyrotechnics and, and stunts. And watching that show kind of in my formative years, I said, like, that's kind of the world I want to be in. I'm not sure what it is, but that's, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of really cool show that kind of exposed me to a lot of that behind the scenes kind of work. Um, so then I went to, to, to film school to study filmmaking and realized that that area that I liked was called production design. And I studied that, um, which in my opinion, there's not really great training out there even still yeah. for production designers or those who want to go into design like that. So a lot of it had to be taking classes that I think could help me, even though it wasn't necessarily part of the film curriculum. I feel like if you, you were know, to if you were to design a class for production design, you'd be like, you'd have to be a real like jerk. And you'd be like, all right, cool. Um, this shoot's Friday. <laughs> I want to budget yeah, well, tomorrow. I I, you know what I mean? Like, you'd have to be a real jerk about it because that's the reality of it. Yeah, and I should tell you the joke. So I got into jerk mode when I went to grad school. I still didn't really feel like I had good training. In my t- I studied uh, in grad school. I was in the MFA program at UC Irvine for theatrical scenic design. Nice. And you would spend, and, and these teachers, like, I, I loved them. Douglas Scott Goheen, who was an amazing tactical designer, but he was purposely horrible to you and your work so that mm. you would get why what you did was wrong. Oh, so you nice. would spend two weeks doing it. You do spend two weeks doing a drawing, <laughs> which now, now I've got to do a drawing like in a, an hour. You know, right. but we'd spend two weeks doing a drawing. In my mind, it was beautiful. It was awesome. I'd bring it into class, he'd put it up on the board. And then he'd just start drawing right on top of it. Like, this is why this is wrong. This is why this is wrong. This is why this is wrong. Why is this person so big? Why is this person so small? Why is the light coming from two directions? And just, like, you'd sit there like you're heartbroken while you looked at this thing in your mind you worked on for weeks and then just scribble over it and pinpoint every little bit that was wrong with what you were doing, which was incredibly effective because <laughs> the fear of that shame <laughs> really motivated yeah. you to... Uh, Fear of shame. Yeah, dude, that's, that's, yeah, fear of shame, yeah. That's, that's, that's how today. we teach people, the fear of shame. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I work for now, the fear of shame. I'm like, that's the, that is it. The, the going home at night after or watching your, your work on TV and just like getting the whip out and, and giving yourself some slashes of like, why did I pick that pillow? <laughs> Yeah, man, that yeah, defines our whole lives right there, the fear of shame. Well, that was, I mean, um, I like that guy then. I don't know. It's like, yeah, like that's said, reality. It was, to me, it was, it was effective, yeah, and that's, it sets us up for the pressures we deal with on a fairly regular basis here. Yeah. Um, but, that, that, so, but getting back in the industry, I, so I studied film design as well as I could in college. After college, in film school, you meet a lot of good friends, like people that you kind of collaborated with over the years in school. And a couple of them were making Napoleon, what turned into be Napoleon Dynamite, which was ended up being a very popular film. But that was made just with a bunch of college friends right after we had finished school together. So we had made that film for a you know very small amount. It just took a couple months to do. And then once that was finished, we kind of said, we're like, okay, we need to kind of move on with our lives. What are we going to do now? Well, that 
you know, get to figure well, out that was it, out. man. I went to grad school. <laughs> that was it. You weren't like a PA. You weren't like some struggling art, like art director or set designer. Yeah, so, like <laughs> you did like two things and then boom, you were Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah. So, so there was like, so there was a really cool side to that, and then like a really hard side to that. Yeah. So I made Napoleon Dynamite. Like, I well, was yeah, because nothing. Because then everything else. Twenty three, you... maybe twenty four. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So I, like I went to grad school, and then like a year later, that was like edited. It was in a Sundance. It was sold to Fox, and I was like, bam, a huge thing all of a sudden. And then I, you know, I got an agent, and I started getting interviews on big projects with big directors and big actors, and I started designing like little films in Hollywood. And I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I, I felt I kind of knew how to design a bit. You, I didn't know what an art department coordinator was. I didn't know what a set decorator was. I, I, I came into a couple of these projects, like, literally not knowing how to do the job. Well, you, 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 surely, you surely didn't know what you were doing when you hired me. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, you see, that's where, that's where things started to... Uh... Yeah, I really, yeah. I, I mean, I could see, I could see that because, I mean, there's so much of this business of, like, fake it till you make it i mean there's so many times someone will say to me like even just oh you know like when they come in this room and they go over and play with the blah 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 blah, and i'm like oh yeah yeah i know it's cool and then like i turn around and look up on my phone like what the fuck was that what's what page was that what are they talking about i don't know what that is shit somebody yeah. help me i do it now no. so you gotta fake it yeah you know <laughs> I had like one good friend in Los Angeles who's now a production designer, Nathan Ogilvie. And sorry, I had lots of friends in Los Angeles. So I had one good friend who was like uh, worked in the art department. And he's like I said, now he's a production designer. But at the time, he was like my go-to for a lot of information I needed. Yeah. And he was an art director at the time. And my plan, I, I took the fanboys film knowing, okay, like I'll bring Nathan with me as an art director. And he knows what's going on. <laughs> and I think kind of between he and I, we could kind of make something happen, right? So I get to Albuquerque, and they're like, nope, you're not bringing anybody at all. You've got to use what's here. And I was like, oh, no, I don't know what to do. Mm. Uh, and that's where I talked him into that. Like, we certainly don't have an art director budgeted as a position. We have a set decorator. And this book, the film was in union at this point, and I think that's why things were a little little wompy. Right. So that's when I was able to, through several recommendations, find you. And I said, I can't believe you drove out to Albuquerque with I you know, some dude calling you. I, I was trying to think who recommended me. I'm thankful because I met you and had that experience, but I don't know who, I don't, I can't remember who that was. And I have said this many times, I only talked to you over the phone twice and then I hopped in my car and I drove to Albuquerque yeah. and halfway there, I was like, Hey, can I talk to someone else? <laughs> Is there anyone else yeah, there? You might be. Your parents instilled enough in you to get halfway there before yeah. you verified what yeah. was going on. <laughs> yeah. I got halfway there, and I'm like, this guy could be a serial killer, just like trying to kill me. And I should probably verify that this is a real thing. And the coordinator you hired got on the phone and started talking to me and said how nice you were and everything. And then I was like, she's in on it. Great, great. He's got her brainwashed. Or like they're together, and they're gonna kill me when I get yeah. there. But. No. But, yeah. yeah, the best part about that was our, our coordinator, Heidi, is I didn't know what an art department coordinator was, which is like, I think, like the staple kind of the, one of the anchors of the art department is this position. And I go out to Albuquerque and they're like, OK, we have a couple art department coordinators in town. You know, you can hire one of them. And I'm like, what is that? Yeah. You know, I go out and I call my buddy Nathan. I'm like, what's a coordinator do? <laughs> so I didn't know. 
what these positions were, let alone how to utilize them or what the importance of them were. So, yeah, Fanboys is one of those ones where I, like, really got thrown into it. I've done a couple of smaller films in town that were significantly smaller than that in L.A. where I kind of fumbled my way through them. But that was probably the big one where, like, I really kind of had to, like, we were building sets. We had a soundstage. We were doing stunts. We were doing, Well, that wasn't know, really a soundstage. It was a warehouse where they kicked the hobos out of and we were able to shoot in. But it was, I mean, as far as Albuquerque goes at that time, I think it was pretty good. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess. I mean, I I hope I never have to go back to that city. I did. I mean, I don't think it, I don't think I need to go back to that city. Let's just say I feel like uh, I've seen it. Yeah. We don't need to, to yeah, repeat no, I, that. I I agree with you. I think it's. Uh, I think I'm good for life on that one. Yeah. Um. I I liked that. I think. One of the first things someone told me when I got there was, "Oh, they shoot the show Cops here." <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, you know, that's cool. Lot, uh, I, yeah, like I grew up in LA, which is a pretty big city, right? I had never seen a SWAT team in LA in my entire <laughs> life. We saw the SWAT team every other day in yeah. Albuquerque, like blowing past us on the freeway or, yeah. or helicopters. Yeah, it was a yeah, it was a pretty active. Uh, one night uh you and i were in the office and a homeless person broke in remember that yeah oh that's right i did totally forget about that we had to like talk him out of there right yeah you were super cool i grabbed my exacto knife i was ready to like take an eyeball out i think we were building i think we were building that model that night that we were building um Oh yeah, really yeah. models at the time, like the trash compactor or something for that. Yeah, and some guy because we were there late and the, we were like downtown Albuquerque, and the door was just left open and he like walked right in. Yeah. And yeah, that was weird. He were like, "Hey man, want me to go talk outside?" And then I was like, "I'm blocking the door behind you." <laughs> yeah. And you quickly got him out, and then I, he were like, "Let me in." <laughs> that was scary. Um, there's, there were so many scary things in that swap, that huge swap meet that was like all socks and guns you could buy or something. It was like super weird. Um, it was just, there was like one good restaurant. They did have good neon. I I remember having like. Yeah, because there was the Route 66 went through there. So we were able to enjoy a bit of what the place, you know, used to be. I think as far as its aesthetics go, it was pretty amazing. It's weird. The rest of that state is gorgeous. Santa Fe is gorgeous. Not to, you know, talk down to Albuquerque, but it's the low point in that state. Yeah. It was, um... And that maybe the time we were there, it was going through something, but... Yeah, you know, but, uh, but on the flip side, remember I called it great people that the 501st, you know, blade seller, all those guys. Oh, yeah. People that really helped that us. There this, yeah, there's also a huge community of people that were, like, just amazing people that you know, made that, made that shoot possible for us because we didn't have a ton of money to do it. We didn't have a ton of time to do it, but no. because of what it was, we were able to kind of tap into this huge community there that was, you it, know, the real kind of gem of what that place is. Well, it was a lot of the Star Wars community that helped us out and gave us, like, costumes and props and set dressing and, like, toys to use. And, I mean, they, yeah. they helped us out their houses and, <laughs> They would have parties. Yeah. <laughs> And we would. We were go, like, we heard, we heard you know somebody who has a thermal detonator. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, well, just who's one? Um, let me give a call. You know, and it's just a huge chain of. Yeah. Talking to guys, trying to track down dressing and props and. Yeah. And everything there it was real like gorilla at first, 
And yeah. it was it was actually the film that turned Union, and that's how I got in at that point. I don't know if you were in by then or not, but I was. I had gotten in on a super small film before that, but yeah, this was like fancy. Yeah, ooh, yeah. <clears throat> but yes, you you also introduced uh, the whole crew to airsoft guns. I must say, and yeah. uh, us as a crew, it was like by the time the film had Remember, completed, everyone had an airsoft gun, and we had a huge battle on like the fifth. I was going to say that night at the hotel. Yes. And it was like a yeah, because the hotel was probably half our crew, you know, 150 people staying in a hotel that were all on the crew. Yeah, we had like this huge airsoft battle. Yeah, down and the I hallway. Everybody... We had like teams. Yeah, it was pretty. Yeah, it was pretty stupid. Wow. I mean, what assholes we were. Like, there were air, there were airsoft pellets. There were thousands of airsoft pellets all over the ground in everybody's room. Like when, they were, when they were vacuuming it up the next day, we were like the sound of like a pellet like hitting the inside of a vacuum. It was just like that constant like vacuum sound of little pellets going in the vacuum. Yeah. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was great. That was that was that was a high point. That was fun. I mean, I I worked with a crew who was like the color green. I mean, taking their price tags off of their tools, and I mean, we got it done. But um, it wasn't it wasn't ideal. It wasn't what I was even used to. Only because I had come from Bones, so I had an idea of yeah. what a crew actually was, and I remember you and I doing so much work and I said to you I'm really embarrassed because you're the production designer and you shouldn't be doing this and you were like what do you mean <laughs> no like we were in the van well, I we were in the making yeah, that so we van the... yeah we were cutting out like I was using a dremel to cut out the holes on the dashboard to add, yeah. add all the switches and buttons and lights and all the little gack that's on there yeah but I think I think the thing that that like you and I had like a passion for what this project was supposed to be and that passion drove us to making it as good as we can make it into working 20 hours a day and just staying late at night. Yeah. Doing all these things ourselves. Whereas most of the other, you know, members we had on our crew, to construction to, to set dressers, to swinging, kind of across the board, were just, you know, nine to fivers that were locals. So mm. they were like, well, we're done for the day. See ya. You know, I, tools down, gone. I and know we're that. Like, Man, but this, I, I know at that one point we, you and I had stayed up like 30 hours or something and we had taken like naps in the set because it was like that last day on stage and and that yeah, was the day like Kevin Spacey came to set and I was like, I don't even remember meeting him. <laughs> that was like supposed to be the highlight of the whole film. Yeah, he was I, think, I think we were, we were like walking, we were, yeah, I think the sun came up, it was call. You know, they were coming to shoot. It must have been the archives room, right? I think that was yeah. the last room that we did because we were we pushed that to the end because it was such a complicated build as well as such a complicated dress. That by the time we left, like the sun was coming up. Um, yeah, like that's when we met, met met Kevin Spacey there in the parking lot, yeah. which was uh, yeah. We were like, "Yep, good to see you, buddy." Adios. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, Hi, how quick. are you? Yep, I don't know what my name is, so I gotta go to bed. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just so tired, and I would say probably one of my bigger set fails as a set dress as a set decorator was that one bedroom of i think it was was his name linus it was like the main character's bedroom and it was like a super sh like quick shot and all i didn't have any dressing left like i had used everything 
and all I had left were those, yeah. <laughs> were those, all those action figures inside. Uh, yeah, we the... put those all up, yeah. Yeah, but I remember no, you but, walking but, in uh, and you were like, what? Like, maybe I could get some posters. <laughs> like, and I was like, I'm really sorry. I don't have any dressing left because I brought no, but, a truckload of dressing with me from L.A. for all of these sets because there wasn't any prop yeah. houses there. Yeah, and I think I think that's if you looked at like the lamps and the side table and the bed and things like that, they were the same as what we used in like Hutch's room or something. Yeah. I think that was like the big we used had to reuse a lot of that kind of set dressing. But fortunately on something like that, like what you succeeded in was that stuff doesn't didn't matter. That was background filler that held up kind of the unique stuff that you did have, like the idea to put all those toys up on the wall and it created like this really nice pattern and there was Visually interesting and showed that there was a big difference between the way he displayed something versus the way Hutch displayed something in his place, which was much more chaotic. And Hutch's and garage was stuff. awesome. That was a fun set. There was just every everything Star Wars. I think we could find. We threw in there. It was great. Yeah, and his was cool. His was used and played with, and used, and uh, you know, all of his stuff was 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 used by someone who appreciated it for you know, the use he got out of it, whereas Linus's was more, you know, particular and on display and and not necessarily as broken into as such as was. It was like a really nice contrast of who each of those guys were I, using, I, the same type, using the same type of dressing but displaying it in a much different way. Yeah. Well, it's a trick. I, um, I also remember, <laughs> like, department heads or whatever, there was few people that we would get together and go to dinner and I remember going to dinner the one night and this actor had just come on and he had the worst laugh. And he was like, I was like, who the frig is this guy? And you're like, you're like, I don't know, it's this guy named Seth Rogen. I don't know. They're all hot about him. And I was like, yeah, well, that laugh's got to go. I was like, this guy's a douche. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, this was probably, like, right before Seth Rogen became Seth Rogen, right? Yeah. And, yeah, his laugh, yeah. I'm sure, was consistent through his whole life. But, yeah, at the time, it wasn't, like, a <laughs> Seth Rogen laugh. It was just a weird laugh. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. I'm at Sony. I've been at Sony for the past seven years. His office has been downstairs for mine. Oh, yeah. So, guess what uh, Guess what I hear going up through the hallway every, uh, every oh. couple hours? It's, like, that same <laughs> Seth Rogen laugh that going you, up through us. Of, uh, you should really tell him Wanup said you'll never make it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, tell me yeah, he had his doubters, you know, 12 yeah. years ago. Yeah, I guess I was one of them. Uh, to cut to, like, <laughs> yeah, I would, bay. I would kill to work for him, so that's great. Um, I think I have a list of, like, 20 other things from that movie that I we probably shouldn't talk about because <laughs> it's either just talking yeah, shit. Yeah, we don't want to get a... T- yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because we, we, we could... We could yeah. It was a weird group. It was a new group, you know, like new director, new designer, new. I mean, even even our DP was fairly new at the time too. <laughs> so part of it stems from us all being pretty new to what we were doing, and also part of it stems from it was a little movie in Albuquerque. So what class of crew are we going to get out there, right? It's yeah, and no one was fringier and a little bit. No one was watching us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, we were like just a bunch of idiots let loose in the desert. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I mean, we we sh- we shoveled snow with our hands. I mean, that was... Yeah, we were trying to clear this. Because... Oh, yeah, we stayed because it was, yeah, like a freak snowstorm the night before on a abandoned road that wasn't supposed to be snowy. Yeah, and so, so you and yeah. I are out there, like, kicking 
and like using <laughs> our hands to get rid of snow and you and i are just looking yeah. at it like this is ridiculous what are we doing like we had to go didn't i think we went and bought a shovel or something and try to like yeah. shovel it away and yeah it was the, just an insane amount of work that we actually accomplished mostly you and i let's be honest uh yeah but i'm glad i'm glad i came into it with like the not knowing the way that i did i remember like you told me that you had a driver drive your set dressing truck for you and i didn't i didn't understand that at the time because everything i had done had been like so small like i would drive the truck full of my stuff yeah no and you're like no i've got a driver he drives a truck for me he drops it off where i need it and i'm like what yeah and like yeah that's like a in the real world, that's a position. You guys drive things for you. You yeah. guys do this for you. Yeah. And I didn't. And I was like, oh, that sounds kind of like what kind of magical world are you talking about where this <laughs> happens? That sounds awesome. So, to me, like even knowing people that had been more successful than me and kind of getting the inside scoop on some of the stuff was like motivation to know, like, okay, this is this gets easier and better and bigger in the long run here. Yeah. So it was always kind of cool catching little glimpses like that of what the of what you know the real Hollywood was besides what we were trying to do at the time. We uh, or what my perception of it was. We did, I think, two days or three days shooting in uh, Las Vegas, New Mexico, and we stayed uh, in that hotel of uh, No Country for Old Men. That was creepy as shit. Yeah. That was creepy. Yeah, it was like an old Victorian. Yeah. You know, uh, Super creepy. Yeah, all creaky, creaky floors and stuff, and you, we came out of it, and it's like right down into the little town square we were shooting in. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, I have yeah, many, there's highlights there of, like, Carrie Fisher being batshit crazy, eating gummy bears off of the floor sure. and talking to herself. Yeah, like, kind of rocking back and forth. Yeah, that was, it was interesting, because was, <laughs> we met so many cool people, right? We yeah, Billy D. Billy D. we met, um, uh, Captain Sh- Kirk. Shatner. Know? Um, and it, yeah, so it, was, it was, like, this really cool, kind of amazing to be, like, that young and that new to this and be able to... Yeah. Yeah. Have access to uh, to kind of things Leg- that are perceived as being so so amazing and great and beyond what you and you legends are and I and I think too you I I know you I, uh, you and I are like huge Star Wars fans. It was like I cannot believe Princess Leia is like sitting over there, or I can't believe like you know Billy Dee's there. Like this is crazy, Lando. Hello, like. Yeah, we, I mean, I went out. I don't know if you were there. I went out to dinner with like Billy D, and he talked about how he's a painter now, and that you could see his paintings in you know hotel lobbies, and he sells them to you know the landscapes, the hotels, and stuff. It was really kind of cool to get these like moments with some of these people that you've you know like in, never in your adolescence or growing up or even the beginning of your career would you ever think that you would be you yeah know, was, doing something like that. It was all. It was you know the best and the worst kind of experience. And the weird thing was, too, we did that in, like, 2004 or 2005, I think. We shot for, like, a month. We had maybe a month prep and a month shoot, maybe. And then it didn't come out for five years. And in that, yeah, time, you know. and in that time, they did reshoots, which I don't – I wasn't a part of one of them. I was a part of the second batch of reshoots. Yeah, you and I, so I wasn't a part of the first one either. And then you and I both did that second batch where we did the big prints in the conference room in Pasadena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, this film was like really, and I'll it's speak, I said, like, like not knowing not, not knowing any of the, the backstory to the upper echelons of filmmaking. But I mean, this film was really destroyed by that process for yeah. whatever reason that process happened. Um, 
I don't think almost destroyed. That's a bad way to put it. it was, it's still a pretty fun and amusing and great film to watch. But, you know, a lot of that heart, I think, was initially what we shot as an original script yeah. was, was watered down quite a bit for whatever reason. It was... Yeah, and it took years. It, it took years. years of figuring out what they were going to do with it. I don't know. And, and they sort of missed the opportunity to release it the year of, like, the Star Wars anniversary and yeah. it just things went by like it was dumb that they didn't release it but and then they finally did which was so like okay now it's coming out and you're like oh okay cool like that that was so yeah, long ago kind of a, yeah it just kind of appeared one day yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah it was it was super weird it was super weird but i am super thankful that i met you and one of the weird things in this world is that we 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 haven't worked together since, right? Did we? Oh, we did one commercial together. You hired me for like a commercial. Yeah, we did a commercial too. That we, yeah, yeah, but I've tried. You've always, you know. I turn you down. Turn you down. No, it's time. It's a weird thing. It's like timing doesn't work out, and then you're like, I'm free, and you're not, or you hired someone, or I'm available, or I'm not available. It's it sucks because there are plenty of people in this business you want to work with, and the timing and the project do, just don't line up. Sucks. Yeah, everything is so it's such a weird fluid industry, it's such a weird way of working too, compared to kind of conventional jobs that do the fluid nature of it. You think you're gonna stick with people forever, people that you like thoroughly enjoy, that you appreciate their work and that you, you know, and enjoy them their personalities and who they are. And yeah, one little thing could throw all that out of out of sync, you know. Yeah. And what's you know, with what's good for one person might not be good for, you know, the other person as far as timing goes and yeah. scheduling and you know, so it's, it's it's hard to kind of keep in sync as much as you want to with the people that you enjoy the most uh, in the industry. And even in that, I've not even seen you. <laughs> I haven't seen you <laughs> in years, which is odd too. And um, but we we text all the time, and we always keep in touch. But it is a weird, it's a weird thing like that of even being on the same lot. Sometimes your shows just don't line up. It's weird. It's so weird. Yeah, like, I, I've got, like, other friends that work on other shows in my lot, and they're like, hey, today's the day you can come look at, you know, I wanted, let's say, uh, what's shooting on Sunny right now? Um, that Apple one about space. Oh, uh, All Mankind. Uh, for, all, for, for, all, for All Mankind, yes. I, I, I wanted to do a lot of sets, like, so badly, and I knew a bunch of the, the, the swing gang, and they, you know, finally set up a time where I could come look, and I was out scouting that day, and it's, you know, something as simple as that. Yeah, walking the next stage over, it's, it's hard. It's so crazy. Busy. I wanted to ask you about, um, there was a pilot you did called Brave New World, which I did get to see your oh. sets for some weird, <laughs> for, oh, yeah. for some reason, I was shooting at the, it's the Disney, um, yeah, the Golden Oak Ranch, yeah, yeah you the, were there the ranch. shooting, right, yeah, I was shooting Parks, I think, and you were shooting this pilot, which I thought was the best, like, uh, plot, it was, Basically, uh, Williamstown, Virginia, uh, Colonial yeah, Williamsburg. Like <laughs> behind the a, scenes. A, yeah, it was like a it was a like a, a pilgrim reenactment village, <laughs> and it was it was kind of like the office. So it was about the people that worked at a pilgrim reenactment village, which was really cool. So it was a, a Peter Tolan created it, who created a Rescue Me, like a really great pedigree as far as yeah. who was creating the show. Um, it was for Sony, produced it for NBC, and um, we built a set that was probably a million dollar set. It you built uh, you built, built so much. Whole... You built a whole little world. Yeah. You built that whole like colonial Williamsburg type 
It was awesome. Yeah, all that. Yeah. yeah. It was it was really really intense and really big and really expensive and really kind of grand. Uh, Ed Bagley was in it, and um, yeah, and then you know, yeah, it was the scope of it was huge. We we took up that huge portion of the uh, the Disney Ranch there to build that, and it was like another one of those things where you put so much into it because you think it's such a great product and such a great idea. And uh, NBC passed on it, which was, you know, pretty heartbreaking at the time. Don't you think that that's so heartbreaking? Like when you do a pilot and then it doesn't get picked up, it's gone. Like I know that we're only part of the design team and the writer who probably worked like five years or whatever on it. And it's gone. Like you make a pilot, they don't like it, done. And it's so much money. I th- yeah. It's so much time and effort and stress. I hate doing pilots. I mean, that, that's, that's, <laughs> that's still, yeah, that's still the biggest single set I've ever built. That's still the most amount of money I've ever spent on a singular, you know, week for the yeah. shooting. And just, just gone. Like, the amount of resources, the amount of research, the amount of time that we put into it. It was, we had live animals all over the set. We had working furnaces. We had working, you know, colonial ovens that were in blacksmith shops and Indian villages and, and then on top of that, we had like the gift shop and the parking for the guests to visit, and all the signage, and you know, the, 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 the employee break rooms that were behind the. Uh, I feel like they should redo was... that. I feel like that's a good idea. I feel like people would watch that. I, I think so. I also wish that failed pilots would have an opportunity to exist somewhere. Yeah, someone had someone said that to me years ago. Like, there should just be a network of like pilots. I think actually, yeah, I, didn't, I don't know. Them. I think it's actually Sarah Silverman said it on Howard Stern once that she wanted to create a network oh, cool. of uh, pilots that she had done that didn't get picked up. And then it was like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. I mean, yeah you, you could fill a whole, uh, yeah, you could fill a whole streaming service with uh, yeah. pilots. There's so much, so much content. You know how many are produced every year and such a small percentage make it into anything. But uh, some of them are amazing. Like I've seen pilots that I've watched where I was like, this is amazing. How could this not have been yeah. made? So much time and effort and money and just wait. And I don't know, I maybe, you know, in this new era that we're in, in the next year or so there, I don't know if they're going to spend the time and money and the, uh, effort to make such like, like frivolous pilot. I don't know. I wonder if that'll cause less pilots. Yeah, you know, that pilot model has been changing a lot lately. You know, it'll be interesting to see if this, uh, you know, affects the, how that's done. Yeah. Even more. Uh, before I ask you about your thoughts on pandemic, uh, we glossed over Napoleon Dynamite <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> um, so I rewatched some of it the other day because it's hilarious and it's hard not to want to watch the whole thing. But these two little uh, dream boats over here keep me a little busy. But I <laughs> wanted to ask about the locations of the houses. So, <laughs> when you scattered these houses, were these people living like this? Like, what happened? Like, what was going on there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, we, so the t- we shot it in the town where the director grew up. And so, he wrote this script. This is in very, very, very rural Idaho. Mm-hmm. He wrote the script with certain of these locations in mind. And so uh, none of the house exteriors are the same as the house interiors, kind of typically for for what we, what we do, yeah. you know, kind of typical practice for what we do, yeah. So um, so he had a lot of these places in mind. We still scouted them and, and looked at options to make sure 
that the aesthetics were right and that it kind of told the right story for us, not that there weren't better options for it. But a lot of, yes, interior design is probably what you're talking about, especially in Napoleon's house, which is pretty, pretty funky. Everything that I used on that show is stuff I purchased in that area, or stuff I <laughs> borrowed in that area, or stuff I rented in that area. So there was, so the Napoleon house was pretty empty. That was an empty house, the interior. I had to build like a little wall in there, like one of the walls in the kitchen I built that's wood paneled. And mm. it was, there was a couple pieces of furniture that were left in that place, but I, I scoured like that tent because kind of the, the, the idea for a lot of that aesthetic was it's kind of the, the land that time forgot, which is some of that Midwestern aesthetic. Which you don't today. know what the time is there because your soundtrack is like 80s. And then you, and but then you got yeah. Jamiroquai in there. So like, the time of of that is unknown. Yeah, I, I think the intent the intent was that it, it was always like a contemporary film. It's just in a place where contemporary aesthetics and life didn't really matter. Mm. It didn't matter that things were new or that things were of the now. All that matters is that things function the way they need to function for us. So a lot of that aesthetic came from what is still kind of lying around in this world that people still use and still function well and still, you know, tell the story of who the characters are. So, you know, I think a lot of the Napoleon furniture I bought from a, um, a storage unit that was up there just outside that town in Idaho there. So I got a couple of those suites of furniture and matching lamps and things like that that kind of came together. But a lot of like that aesthetic up there is 20, 30 years old at the time. So honestly, it was a lot easier to dress and design that film there than I think it would have been in yeah. L.A. Yeah, because you would have gotten pieces that are statement pieces and not like every regular, everyday sort of life pieces. Exactly. And also, you know, we get stuff from our rental houses here, and some stuff's a little beat up. It's not as taken care of as it should be because it moves 20 times a year. And yeah, you've yeah. Fix it and... yeah. But because I bought a lot of the stuff from people that were still up until recently using it, a lot of the stuff was still in pretty great condition. It was still stuff that people took care of and, and cleaned and maintained and had on display in their homes. So I think I feel kind of lucky that we found this really great stuff for the show that was in pretty immaculately preserved condition because it was something that had, <laughs> you know, kind of been care caringly used for the past 30, 40 years. How did uh, you come up with the locker colors? We looked out. The school was actually those colors. Oh, you, that, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I, I feel bad even saying that. But yeah, so that's school. <laughs> and that became like this big iconic part of the whole marketing of the film. Like the poster had the lockers and the, the trailer had the lockers in it. And, it was, and that was the actual high school that the director of the film went to. Oh my gosh, that's So crazy. he was like very intimately, you know, had exactly in mind what he wanted for the shots and how he wanted it to look. And no. <laughs> yeah, wasn't that cool though? Like the color combination was perfect and yeah. it was like just funky enough to, to work. So Now I know the answer to this question, but um how did you come up with the Vote Pedro t shirt? Oh <laughs> uh, vote for Pedro those were just the um the director's wife bought uh the peel and stick stickers like down at the craft store and just made the shirt, you know, in the driveway. It's so crazy. <laughs> So crazy. So yeah, a lot, of that, a lot of that stuff was like, how would these people make what, what, you know, what they what they show and what they use? So like, then the flyers they have are like done by on the computer. It's all kind of done by hand. 
little for Pedro Fires was all hand drawn, even the text and But that's all your drawings, right? The unicorn and like all that. The all the text I had so John Heater, who plays Napoleon, mm. he drew the actual Liger and stuff. So <laughs> it would be like in his style. Mm. And then I put it together by drawing all the, the rest of the fire and stuff around it. That's awesome. And then you came, and then you did the I love the photos in their living room, like the oh yeah so day, yeah so day, so day one I kind of you know and trying to study for what that film should be it's it's a weird aesthetic but I I, I bought a bunch of uh, you know like old Sears catalogs and you know furniture catalogs from the seventies and department store you know fashion catalogs from the seventies and eighties to try to figure out what that look is. And like that photography style was obviously so popular that what my, oh my God, yeah. first ideas was because we had those scenes of sitting on the couch against the wall, which is like the death nail of, of yeah. you know, cinematography there, right? So it was how do we like enliven that little tableau? How do we make that feel like it's something that's interesting and is, is kind of serving what the feel should be? So it was that type of photography that was, yeah, in fact, I've still got those. They're in my house here somewhere. Uh, there's there's your college. There's your kid's college fun. There you go. Yeah, so we made those on day one. It was like I, I, took, I took the photos of both him and, uh, you know, Kip and Napoleon in the driveway, and then I went back to the little house I was staying in and photoshopped them all together and printed them out and bought those frames down at the little uh, craft store in town. <laughs> Iconic. There you go. Yeah. Um, I, uh, that, that movie holds up. I'll tell you that much. Oh, good. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it in a while. I need to rewatch it and see if I'm embarrassed for what I've done or if I'm still proud of it. <laughs> oh yeah, I you should be. I mean, it's it. Oh, it's really good. It's really funny, and it's just it's. I think aesthetically, it's fun to watch because it's so weird. <laughs> it's like yeah, you nailed this weirdness, like... this vernacular <laughs> weirdness of like people in Idaho. That's kind of fascinating. I mean. <laughs> Well, good. I'm glad. And also, I think one of the things similar to like how fanboys is really fueled by like our passion for the projects, like Napoleon more so probably than almost any other project I've done, was fueled by like this communal passion to do it. We didn't really know what we were doing. We didn't have any money to do it. We, you know, certainly didn't have any inkling of what the success of it would be. God. But we really had like this passion for what it could be. So, you know, one of the things we really took the time to figure out is like, what is this language of design in this film? So everything from, you know, the cinematography to how each of those frames was set up by our DP, which is, you know, each one's like a little tableau. It's a little moment in time. It's kind of this locked off frame that we, because like that's the way it was shot, I was able to cater the design to each of those little locked off frames. You know, we were able to kind of dress to what that image we felt was kind of the right thing to do for it. So we thought it. Kind of, kind of like a commercial, how you can art direct each kind of camera setup, you know, very purposefully and very directly. It's kind of the same thing we did for this film because each little locked off shot needs to almost kind of feel like a little piece of artwork in and of itself. Oh, yeah. They're, they're great little vignettes in, in the film. And that alpaca, I mean, <laughs> it's all the, the teeter ball. Like, it's all, they're all really beautiful shots, too. Because you just have that big wide open space when he's out with the alpaca and just even like the, the van, the, um, I don't want to say van, but the, um, the place where the dude lives, like, uh, like just the, the scenery is so beautiful. And, and then you have this weird piece of set dressing in there. It's just such a story in, in just the look of it. 
Okay, you know, one of the things that we had on that, like we didn't have any money, but because we were on college together and the director had been, you know, coming up the stories like for years, is that we had like a lot of time to think about this and figure it out, like while we were in school and even while we were in quote pre-production for it. So it was really we benefited from the amount of time we had, whereas we didn't have the money to do what I normally would have been expected. We had the time to really kind of figure out and. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, time and money. Time and money. You always want more. <laughs> uh, speaking of time and money, I don't know how you have enough time, but you actually hold a completely other job while you do this in uh, entertainment design. And you've been yeah. doing it for years. And you mm -hmm. just... So you design outside projects for, like, Disney or... Uh, Universal or DreamWorks or I mean you've had so many projects over the years can you talk a little bit about that and how you do two at the same time yeah so I've got like two pretty distinct careers going on one's obviously production design for film and television I'm also a, an art director in what's called location-based entertainment or entertainment design and I've been doing that actually longer than I've been designing you know, longer than I've been a production designer. Mm -hmm. So what that means is it, it boils down to, uh, I essentially designed theme parks and museums and places like that, kind of immersive environmental design. And uh, yeah, I've been doing that since I was, when I was in high school, I actually uh, was trying to figure out how I could learn, you know, practical art and design a bit better and got a job as an assistant for a company, a pretty big company that, that designed theme parks. They were subcontractors to Universal and Disney, Disneyland and, and places like that. And so I swept floors and I cleaned, you know, the milling machines after school and was eventually able to work my way up into working in the art department where I eventually was yes. trained to become a model maker for a long time there. And uh, that's where I first kind of got my foot in the door into this kind of environmental, you know, entertainment design. And so once I went to grad school, I started working for for Walt Disney, uh, for Disneyland, where I designed uh, parades and I designed uh, a lot of the um, kind of uh, holiday overlays at Disneyland Park. And, you know, from there on, I started working more and more with a lot of the different companies that have theme parks and started designing uh, yeah, theme parks. And, what and a lot is, of museum work. work what, also. Is, what is like the duration of a, of a project? Uh, years and years, depending on what it is. Um, it's it's a industry that works significantly slower than what we're used to in television because what we're designing in this industry is, is real life and needs to exist out there in the real world. Right. So there's a lot more consideration and thought put into how something is built and and what the narrative story is of what it is that we're designing. Um, so it's, it's kind of a nice break that I'm able to do that whenever I can. So I feel like it's time for me to kind of catch my breath and still design while being on a significantly different, you know, timetable than what we're used to in, in the film and television industry. Well, yeah, and you have more than actors uh, and, and crew being a part of it. I mean, it's, as you said, it's like real architecture and, and real spaces that people uh, experience. And how, um, are some of them permanent or are, are they, like, just installations that are pop-ups, like... Yeah, so it's 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 a it's a bit of both. I've got a lot of permanent stuff. Last year, I designed the um, DreamWorks Theater at Universal Studios Hollywood, which is a permanent building that's there. I, 
Last year I designed the exterior of the Pets Place land. That's going into Universal always also. Mm-hmm. So that's opening up. That's opening, well, it's supposed to open up this year, but who knows now with what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it is real permanent, big park infrastructure, you know, type of, type builds and spaces. And then a lot of what I do, too, or at least when I was working for, for Disneyland, a lot of it was the real temporary parades and, and holidays and things like that. So if you go to um, New Orleans Square and there's a uh, – Nightmare for Christmas, you know, theming and, and decoration, all that. I designed a lot of that um, at the park. So, awesome. uh, quite a, yeah, and then also same thing for museums. I designed a lot of museum display, displays and exhibitry and things like that for, I designed for uh, like National Geographic and the Smithsonian and some really big places. What is um, these, you know, what is museum, the Obama museum, one? Well, What's the Obama, Obama time? I, 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 so I, I did concept designs for uh, the Obama Presidential Library. Wow. And I believe that the firm I was doing it for actually wasn't selected for the contract. But, yeah, it's kind of cool working on things like that to have the opportunity to, uh, you know, design such a wide variety of, of, of spaces. Damn. And it's interesting that the design, the, the big, you know, obviously the design skills between the two careers is pretty pretty similar. You know, you're inviting, you're designing themed spaces. But in film and television, we're really able to control that POV. You right, know, I design right. exactly what we're going to see, and through, you know, uh, cinematography, those views are so controlled that you only see what it is that we want you to see as filmmakers. In entertainment design, you're really designing a completely immersive experience so that these narratives are able to be explored by the individual guests that come into each space. And so lighting. I would think lighting would probably is a big thing. You know, you're not controlling. Lighting's huge, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this whole, yeah, just like I'm the, the art director for a show, there's huge lighting designers and lighting technicians that really haven't taken into consideration how each of these things are being lit and viewed. And it's, you, you want the narrative to be explored by guests, not necessarily have the narrative told to you. So because of that, you have to design these environments that are, you know, conducive to kind of that narrative storytelling that's being explored by the guests as they go through these spaces. Yeah, they're beautiful. I, I'm, I'll definitely link your um, webpage to this. They're beautiful designs. I mean, and oh, cool. just awesome sort of like you, you have this like integration of your sets and then like these these projects. And you're like, man, the 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 um, scope of these other projects is sometimes a massive amount of work. I could see how it would take years. Mean. Yeah, some are like I, I took a, I did, I was the art director on the Harry Potter experience in the UK, which was uh, I took that we had design phases and eventually I took that through schematic design, but that was you know multi-year project by the time that was built and opened in the UK. Um, there's other projects I've done that have taken yeah I've stuck with them for years and years. It's kind of interesting. Some sometimes these projects move between separate companies, so Universal Studios or Universal Creative is what they're called will subcontract out projects to other design companies and sometimes they change those design companies if they want to change the direction of something and I've done like the same project for multiple different design companies mm. even you know years years apart from each other wow um, so yeah it's interesting to see how things have kind of evolved and and changed there's so much the interesting things there's so much like film property that is you know attractive to these location based uh, destinations so I spent a couple of years working with Lionsgate, developing 
um, locations for like Hunger Games parks and Mad Men, you know, bars, environments, and things like that. So, so it's when you cool to see the crossover between when film you, and yeah, but when you do things like you were saying, like Harry Potter and and Hunger Games, do you ever uh, talk to the designers of the film or the show? I mean, I wouldn't think it's you'd have to. You're going off of what's on screen. I don't think that you would have to, but... Yeah, in my mind, I'm always thinking, like, why Why didn't you... Why would you not hire the guy that designed this originally? Yeah, that's <laughs> kind of what I wanted to ask, but I didn't... <laughs> yeah, and, and the reality of the fact is that there... It is a fairly specialized skill set when designing something for a larger public yeah. to come into as opposed yeah. to designing something strictly for, like, a film or television narrative. So we we take into consideration capacities and back of house requirements and, and there's so much kind of technical practicality that has to go into these spaces that almost somebody specialized in that world really needs to focus on how to make those work. Yeah. Um, so I personally have never taught. It's kind of interesting. I always feel kind of weird about it. I feel like I'm kind of stealing somebody's stuff. But yeah, even the times when I was doing this stuff for for Harry Potter and then on to uh, the Mad Men, the Lions and Gates, uh, the uh, sorry, uh, Hunger Games stuff. It's like I just became like best friends with those projects. I watched all the films. I'd take all the screenshots. I'd do every kind of behind-the-scenes research I could do to figure out what these places are supposed to be. I think it's an ode to. It's kind of like a, a like a celebration, sort of like your work was so good that they want to, you know, make it into a real space. I would take yeah, it as a compliment. The, yeah, I, I think so, too. And so hopefully that, you know, these other designers that have had their work kind of emulated by people like me hopefully can appreciate the, the care that we do put into it because everything I'm doing, I'm trying to do it with the same kind of, you know, heart and aesthetic and, and communicative language that they put into the films. And so part of it too is we have to extrapolate on what we see on screen because what we see on screen isn't necessarily going to make the best real world environments for us. But the intent is always to kind of capture that same, you know, purpose and the same emotional feel that they had in the in their films. So, on something like uh, the Hunger Games, where I'm making a, several environments that didn't necessarily exist in the films, I'm trying to make things that could feel like they were part of those films. I could feel like they were part of what those designers would have mm-hmm. would have had if they had them in their films. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to be as respectful, and considerate of those types of designs as I can be, because I know that there's a very you know strong purpose to why those designs were done the way they were don't you think it's a sin that um production designers don't get uh royalty checks or like you know know, it's so crazy sometimes that the amount of what we put on a screen is huge obviously right you know and it's it's considered to be an art it's like an art that's replicated and seen millions of times over so i always say I always feel like, you know, I, I, I've heard from my art director that at one point the Art Directors Guild was, was asked to merge with the DGA at a certain point so that they could receive all those types of, yeah. you know, accommodations that, that directors get. For whatever reason, they decided to remain independent. Um, but at the very least, I feel like we're probably one of the most underrated aspects of filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not just saying that because we're in it. I'm saying it's true. Our work is on screen at all times, basically. And I mean, I know it's up to the writers and the actors and the director. I know that, but it's... it's... And and our work will be on screen when there isn't any actors or dialogue on either. Yeah. You know, there's also times where we're just simply looking at environments in in films and television. And I, I think it's a bit of a... 
it's a bit more disappointing than I thought it would be the amount of appreciation that I think design gets in this type of work. Oh, absolutely. And, and even, I mean, I'll say, I mean, I, winning an Emmy was phenomenal. Personally, it didn't, it didn't do anything. <laughs> I still gotta wake up. You know what I mean? Like you still gotta wake up. You still gotta haul your shit. You still gotta, you know, it's still exhausting. I didn't get, I didn't get a, I went back to the same show and I didn't even get any more money and I won an Emmy for that show. Like I, <laughs> it made no difference to me, but I'm sure shit if I was an actor and went back to the show, if I, you know, oh, yeah. it would have been different. So yeah, or a yeah, director definitely. or a writer, I'm sure if they're not under a contract and you negotiate, see, that's what we're missing. Kind of. We don't have that. Decorators, especially. At least yeah. you have the ADG. I mean, at least well, I, I feel I feel like we've allowed for ourselves to be taken with less seriousness or less importance than some of the other. I know. Um, I wonder know, why. I mean, there's and, always and, times. And, like, how many times have you started a project before you were on payroll? How many times I started projects before there's even a director? Before there's well, you've scouted any, and, anything, and, you know? Yeah. yeah, and it happens all, especially scouting with designers and like you're scouting on a Saturday because the only time you can get in and you're not paid or it's constantly like, hey, do me a favor and you know we'll just do this this thing and it, I don't know, it is it's underappreciated. Well, I don't know why we allow ourselves to do be treated like that. <laughs> yeah, I know it's it's a collective mindset, and also we're constantly. The thought that it is a privilege to do what we do is kind of constantly reinforced to us, which is, I, I think, yeah, not the best mentality for us to have. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. There's, there's this constant kind of like, well, I mean, look what you're able to do. Aren't, aren't you lucky? Right, right. That's kind of I think pressed to us from above quite frequently that we're, you know, lucky to be in the positions we're in. We're in the rallies. Is that a show at the Goldbergs or a show like Parks and Rec could not exist without the kind of creative minds that are visually building those environments yeah, at all. Exactly. But on the flip side, it couldn't exist without grips. It couldn't exist without our yeah. boom operators. It couldn't exist without any of the positions that are in there. So it's interesting that the, the disparity between appreciation, I suppose, even though appreciation, who cares? It's nice, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I but I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I, I don't know what to think about that. Other than I, I do agree with you that it, it does seem like a, a bit of a travesty that this the amount of effort and time and craft that goes into this is, I think, very much underappreciated. Yeah. And I just like a show like the Goldbergs, not to toot our horn, but like toot away. Every single every single thing we do is handcrafted. Every single product you see on the screen is a real product we created. Every food product, every Atari game that's brand new and packaged that the kid opens up, every you know vintage can of Coke is something we've made. So there's so much effort that goes into this type of craft that it would be nice that it was appreciated. So maybe it doesn't matter that it's appreciated. Maybe it fulfills the needs of the story, and the story as a whole is what's appreciated. And as long as we're supporting that, maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. So well, you have I don't to. Know. Ha- I kind of, I kind of go back and forth on it, but it's. You have to it's have inner. To think about or that. It's it's your inner love of it that makes you get up every day. Otherwise, why would you do it? I mean, I always say to myself, "Well, I'm not pushing concrete. You know, my job is hard, yeah. but I'm not out there." You know, I'm not physically being beat down every day. I mean, you kind of are. I mean, I hate, I don't, yeah, then, I, you hate to say it, I'm, but you are. 
sometimes I'm scouting in the van and I look out and I see a guy pushing concrete and I'm like, that looks, doesn't look so bad. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, I'll, maybe I'll do that for a while. <laughs> yeah, you'd last like, like one day. <laughs> you'd be I like, know, man, like then you'd be like, hey, look at that van going by. That looks pretty cool. That guy's sitting in a van. <laughs> Although, I don't know how much longer we're going to be sitting in vans. I don't know about scouting with this pandemic. I don't know how we're going to pull that off. I think it's oh. going to have to be pictures only. Good. I'm fine with that. I don't want to go to another van in my life. Yeah, I know. I know. Every production designer is uh, super happy about pandemic yeah. and scouting. I was... I was... I was always a big uh, self-drive, if you know what I mean. Yeah, self-drive, yeah. Uh, what do you think? I mean, I, th- I mean, I don't think whatever standards we set are going to be forever, but do, do you have any no, idea when you're going you're gonna to go back or if you're, you know? I, you know, I, I am a person that knows nothing. My wife is a nurse, yeah, so yeah. she's much more versed in this than me, so I'm fortunately able to, you know, glean a bit of her insight into this, but... With nothing getting better, I don't see how we're going to be able to progress unless we make kind of changes to how we do things. I also feel that the studios and creators of content are going to need to create new content. We're running out of it, and it's going to kind of you know, dwindle at a pretty quick rate here. Yeah. So I don't see how there's not going to be a desire for the studios to open up as soon as they can after they've figured out how to do that. Yeah. I think everyone. So I'm sure. I'm sure that that's going to equate to us having to work in a much different way than what we're used to working in. Yeah, I. I think. Uh, um, I, don't know. I just think we're all going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's inevitable. I, <laughs> I think we're all going to get it. I think, and uh, you just hope that it's not serious when you do get it. I don't know. I don't know how else. I'm not just saying like the entertainment industry, but everyone who goes back to an office or this and that. And it's like, and and some of us will get it and, and it won't mean a thing. And some of us will get it and it'll be bad and that sucks. And I just, oh, I'm afraid to go out of the house at this point. I don't know. I don't just, I just think we're all going to get it. It's inevitable. <laughs> yeah. It seems like if there is no solution to it, then there's no, no other choice but for us to, uh, yeah, for it to work its way through us one way or the other. So, I, I mean, especially I'm lucky the kids are are young. I don't have to do the homeschooling and all that. But and I especially think once kids go back to school, unfortunately, then it it will. It's gonna go. It, everyone's gonna get it. I know some guy on my crew has a has kids in school, and then his kids get sick, and then he's sick, and then like my lead man gets oh, yeah. sick, and then I get sick. It goes. It happens all the time in our crew. And 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 oh, yeah, when as soon it, as your and, kids are old enough to yeah, as soon as your kids are old enough to be in school, your whole life is a one never-ending cold. Yeah, yeah. So I can <laughs> imagine, you know, once schools open, it's just. And I'm not saying that's a bad, it's, it's, it's a bad thing. I mean, schools have to open. I'm not saying don't open them, but I think that's a huge deterrent too. Not just us going back to work. I think kids going back to school is a huge thing for us all contracting it also. And uh, Hey, how about this? They get that vaccine. Who knows? It's a first run vaccine. Like what are we shooting into our bodies? I don't know. I'm really freaking out about all this. Like, I'm really, I'm not sleeping well the last two nights. Like, oh, well. no, I, I hear you. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's all, the whole thing's un, uncharted, so it's, uh, I try to think as practically as I can about this, and it's, it's hard, it's hard to be practical about something that you know so little about personally, so, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it, it'll be a whole, I said it'll be different how we're doing things for quite a while, I can only imagine that it's going to be harder for us in the future, even if we do go back to school, if we do go back to work, especially in our industry, we work so closely together, we're so collaborative, there's so many of us close together at, at any given point. It'll be interesting to see how, well, I think what that too, into. I think your shows are good to be on in a sense that you are on the lot um, and your stages are all set up and like you're, you're grounded you know, at, at a lot, if you didn't have to go on location or a lot of your locations are on the lot, you know, your shows are, are pretty equipped for that. That's a good thing. Yeah. And I think so too. And that's also, we've been working together for so long on these shows that if we had to, you know, work in a much more scattered sense, you know, we had to be further away from each other. We had to separate offices. We had to communicate via phone calls instead of in person. I think that fortunately a show like mine has been running for so long or shows that have been up and running for so long, we already have our communicative shorthand down to where we know how to do what we're doing. We know how we can, you know, keep the process rolling. So I think for some of those more established shows where the crew has their rhythm down and their, you know, their pacing down, it might be a bit easier to jump into with some new restrictions than it would be for something just starting up. Yeah. yeah. You know, when, you know, when you just, when you just start up and your collaboration with the showrunner and with your director, and with your DP is pretty intense. It's, it's, Oh yeah. Pretty in person and it's pretty, you know, constant with the communication, but now it's I, I think we're at a point where we really could be really far removed from each other while still making sure that this that it worked. But yeah, most of what's gonna be starting up though is gonna be that fresh stuff that requires that collaboration, so Oh I know. I'm on, I'm in it. I mean yeah, like, we didn't even start shooting yet. I don't Yeah. I have no idea. I don't know how I don't know how they'll do it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, I do know that hopefully one day there's Taco Bell in our future. <laughs> oh, of course. Well, we're going to make it. Even if it's during the pandemic and we're eating through a face mask, we'll do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should say I miss you. I haven't seen you in years, but I miss you. But at least we get to, to uh, chat every once in a while. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. I love seeing the work that you're doing because it's always... And I've always, you know, so good to see. And they said you you won, and it was pretty amazing. And I don't even know myself how to even uh, do something like that. So it's, it's <laughs> been pretty cool to see, you know, your work. Because <laughs> I remember you were you were like, I won an Emmy, and I was like, Oh, that's cool. How do you do that? <laughs> uh... I think I think I think when you won, because I talked to you kind of around that time, I then looked to see like what the process was. And Dude, like, you're full of shit. You have submitted. There's like no way. Uh, you guys don't submit? Uh, I, I never submitted anything. Well, who used, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know what the pro. I think. All right. I, I think I looked into it once. All right, it your says, agent. Like, you got, like, yeah, like, well, guess 40. what? Your agent better be listening to this podcast right now. And she, <laughs> he or she better get on this shit because <laughs> that's obscene that the Goldbergs wouldn't submit or schooled. Like,. No, someone's you. You need you know you need the helper. Right. You know what you mean. <laughs> you need, you need, your art department coordinator should be doing this. I don't know who your coordinator is. They should be right. on well, top I'm of this. I'm don't call them right now. Yeah, yeah, get on it. 
because submissions are due like June fifth or something. I already know. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, uh, I'm gonna well, get on it then. Well, I mean, at least I haven't had to compete against you then. <laughs> well, I know. It's all now that I know that I need to do it. You're going down this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have. Uh, well, we have a good place. We're submitting. I believe we're gonna submit good place. I hope. We'll oh, you can get the pity vote because it's finished. No, you don't win like that. People are like, ah, oh, it's over. You know what a lot of people do? They like, ah, oh, I think that won already. I'm not voting for that. <laughs> <laughs> or it's very hard to win t- two. You know what I mean? Like once you won, you probably yeah, you shouldn't submit one. anymore. I'm kind of a fan of that. Like once you win, you probably shouldn't submit anymore. Yeah, spread some around for the rest of us. Yeah, I'm. I'm okay with that. I'm kind of. I'm kind of okay with that, and then mm, I'm kind of not. <laughs> kind of selfish. Everything else sucked. Well, I need another one. I got two boys. I got. I can't leave one behind. Um, what are you? What are you up to? Like, uh, are you just are you working on anything? Oh yeah. So I'm. Um, one things I'm able to do. So film and television, obviously, it's really hard to do during this uh, time. But I'm still able to do a lot of location-based work because a lot of that work I'm able to do remotely by myself. But one of the big things I've been working on for the past two years is rebuilding the Paramount Ranch western town that burned down in the Woolsey Fire. Oh, wow. So, That's so I've been great. working at the National Park Service for the past year or so designing the new western town that's going to be put back to the Paramount Ranch for filming. So I've been fortunate enough to be able to keep working on that during the pandemic here and uh, – yeah, which is kind of cool. It's a, it's a, obviously a set that is existed, you know, since the 1920s for shooting on, but it's also a place that's open to the public for them to enjoy as well. So it's kind of this cross design between, uh, you know, filming location and, you know, environmental, you know, enjoyment for the for the community as well. Oh my god, that's great! So you go out there much? You have to go out there. A lot? Yeah, it's just down, I, I live just down the street from it. So I, I'm pretty close by, which is one of the reasons I, I got involved in it is because it's such a part of the community here where we live since I live near the Paramount Ranch. That's so uh, I go there, yeah, a lot to, uh, to right now we're still, you know, early on to the kind of pre-design phase of what this should be because it's with the National Park Service, which now owns the property. It's a very lengthy governmental, you know, process to make anything happen. Mm. But it's been a... Uh, it's been really cool to kind of go through the history of what this was and kind of the history of its importance to, you know, the film industry over the past uh, hundred years now. Did, and it's, uh, did like Bonanza shoot there? Really or... Functional for the future. Did Bonanza or like, rifle, did like Bonanza or Rifleman yeah, so, shoot there? So a, lot, a lot of those, a lot of those shoes like back in the fifties and sixties, all those Westerns, you know, really brought it into kind of its heyday of popularity. And then in the eighties, it became much less, you know, popular, that type of, TV show and that kind of Western uh, film. So the property ended up being donated by its current owners, the National Park Service. And it kind of uh, was used for small things here and there. Probably the biggest thing it was used for in the 90s was Dr. Quinn shot there. Mm-hmm. And then recently, uh, before the fire, Westworld was shooting there. Mm-hmm. So, so it, uh, it, it kind of served a kind of nice purpose in the kind of recent memory here. But now my goal is to build it in such a way that it's a much more attractive and usable uh, location for filming. That's awesome, man. Great project. So, yeah, that's been kind of cool. You're like building your own back lot. Yeah. <laughs> <Trying to hear. laughs> that's awesome. You mean that that's like, that's a staple in like Hollywood. Like, that's awesome. 
yeah, it's interesting. We looked, and in, in, in the amounts of Western towns that exist now, it's, it's getting smaller and smaller. But a lot of them are, such as those ones up in Santa Clarita, and kind of closing down and falling into disrepair. So yeah, they're bad. It's really nice to kind of have a have a new. Yeah, it's. I shot one of the Goldbergs this past year, and it was so much work just to even get it kind of yeah. shootable. So it'll be good to have one that's you know kind of built with filming in mind and built with an aesthetic that is kind of camera ready to come into and shoot it. So that's kind of the goal that I'm going for right now. That's awesome that you have that to do while we're down too. I mean, you've always had that though. It's like, what are you working on? I'm in between shows. I don't care. I got this project going on and working for Disney and it'd be like, shit, man, I need a job. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I always felt like a little spoiled, a little lucky that I'm going to be able to hop back and forth between the two. I really can't imagine carrying on another full-time job while set decorating a show. I don't know how he does it. And he's got three kids. Three gorgeous kids. I mean, I am not kidding. I thought he was a serial killer. I think I pulled over for gas in Flagstaff or something, and then I came to this realization of, like, I don't know who this dude is. I mean, it was so naive. I just jumped into the car. I started driving cross-country. But... It was. It was a great life and work experience that made me grow, so I'm really thankful. And he didn't kill me. And I got a really good friend out of it. And we both have no shame in our love for Taco Bell. So I'm very thankful he was able to do this podcast. Um, I really do love the Goldbergs, and believe me, over the years that I've watched and it's been on, I like email him after the episodes and like, hey, kudos, that was a good one. Thanks for those, like, little Philly details you put in. Like, just trying to call out how appreciative I am of of those details. So I'm really glad that, uh, that he did the interview. I hope you enjoyed that. So here's the thing. I ask all the time at this part of the show for a little review on iTunes. And it's come to my intention that possibly a lot of you have no idea what I'm talking about. So... To the majority of you who are listening on your phone, in the podcast app, um, if you search Decorating Pages and you select the show and then scroll down to Ratings and Reviews, you can just tap that five stars. Tippity tap tap and then maybe, if you got a minute, write a review. And it's pretty much the same um, on your desktop, your laptop, with Mac. Just go to the podcast app and then scroll down. There I am. Reviews and ratings. If you're rocking a PC, I'm sorry. I've been out of that game for a while. I don't know what goes on there. But I'm sure you figure it out. You're on a PC. I'm sure you can figure it out. So thanks for that. Check out the Decorating Pages YouTube channel and subscribe there to see these little clips of past podcasts that I've been putting to video. If I were you, I'd start with the production designer David Grotman and the little clip that I did of him talking about the color green that he selected for the film Doubt. And again, uh, that YouTube is Decorating Pages channel, and don't forget to subscribe so you're alerted to all the new clips. Coming up in the next uh, month or so, here are the interviews I've lined up. Next week is production designer Tracy Dishman. Then production designer Brian Stone Street, set decorator Brandy Kalish, set decorator Don Deers, 
I got a roundtable discussion of the finale of The Good Place with Ian Phillips, Adam Rao, Gabe Perillo, and Graham Radcliffe, and myself. And then uh, editor Jonathan Fisher, who is just going to school us about the editing process. It's so much good stuff. I hope you got an earful. I'm Kim Wanup for Decorating Pages. Father's Day is just around the corner. Give Dad the gift of relaxation. A stogie in the pool. Stogie Floaty Luxury Pool Float. Available now on Amazon, Etsy, and stogiefloaty.com.